Excellent. Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 17. We are in a grand series in Acts. We've been doing this uh, for most of this year so far, uh, and it's been a real thrill. And here's where we are right now. We're in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34 today. And the title I've given to this morning's message is The God Worth Worshipping. The God Worth Worshipping. And I'm going to begin, we're going to read the passage, the most important thing we can do, and then we'll dive into it a little bit deeper. So Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made them, made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his, his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That is God's word for us this morning. 
And I love that song we sang uh, just before Nick came up. What, what a prayer to pray as we come before God's word. Praying that he would feed us and show us Christ once again. Well, I want to begin this morning, follow up our reading, with a picture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this picture before. This is one of those pictures that uh, has two things going on at once. Okay, And you may have seen pictures like this before. There are two faces to see here. And I was actually given this one by Johnny, who you might know is a pastor of a village church, works in our office. Uh, he gave me this illustration and this idea. And this one actually had me foxed for a little while. And some of you look really puzzled, so maybe it's got you as well. There are two faces here. Now, you can probably see the obvious one, looking to the right. Uh, big nose, big lips, looking rightwards. Uh, but there's another face. And uh, this, this face, I'll try and help you. Uh, so the, the ear on the left is actually his eye. And his face is half in shadow. So his nose is actually there right in the middle. So he's looking down to the right-hand side. Can you see that? Is there any... Well, you won't want to admit it. Is there anyone that, even with that explanation, can still not see? Ezra. <laughs> You'll get there in the end. I'll send it to you by email, Ezra. Two faces. Some people quickly see both. Others struggle to see more than one. This morning's passage is all about what we can see when we look at the world around us and the culture that we live in. Whether we can see two faces in the world or only one. Whether all we see is a happy face or whether we can also see the dark, shadowy face beneath. As we've just heard in Acts 17, Paul has, at this point, travelled down to Athens alone. He's waiting there now for uh, Timothy and Silas to join him. And uh, we've got a map again this morning for those that like to follow his travels. There we are, uh, heading south now, down into Athens. And Athens was an impressive city. It's an impressive city to go visit today, but, but back in Paul's time, it was even more impressive, less ruined. There was so much to see. Uh, this had the potential to be quite a holiday for Paul. Quite the sightseeing trip. Athens was the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman world. It was the equivalent of modern-day Vienna or Paris or Rome. It was the home of scholars, rich in philosophy, full of artistic and architectural beauty. It was a sightseer's paradise. You could see the Acropolis, the Parthenon, the Erechtheion, the Agora. And I promise this morning I'm not on commission for the, uh, the Greek tourist board. But everywhere you look, there was grandeur and spectacle, human achievement and cultural beauty. There was so much to take pictures of and upload to Instagram and show people back home what a, an amazing time you were having. It would have been so easy for Paul just to be starstruck by what he was seeing. Just in the way it's so easy for us to be starstruck by many of our modern cities today with their shops and stadiums and lights and theatres, statues and galleries, businesses, multiplexes, towering architecture, old and new. Human grandeur is all around us. But human grandeur is not all that Paul could see. Paul could see another face to this city. Another side to the lives of the people who live there. And it's that ability to see the other side, to see this darker side of the world we presently live in that I believe the Lord wants to show us this morning through this passage in Scripture, through this account of Paul's trip to Athens. 
to help us see the darkness and the lostness of this other side, this other face, and then to see the goodness and the glory of God's great gospel solution. So I've got just two points this morning. First of all, we're going to see a world full of idols, and then we'll see the only worthy God. First of all, a world full of idols. As Paul looked out on the splendor of Athens, verse 16, Paul saw that the city was full of idols. And that word full there carries the idea, not just of being sort of full to the brim, but, but being under something, drowning in something. The, the city was smothered with idols. It was drowning in idolatry. And that really is no exaggeration. In Athens, practically every building and statue and street corner was dedicated to a different god. There was Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune and Diana. Gods of war and love and money and business, of harvest and wine and music and poetry and strategy and so much more. The whole Greek pantheon of gods was there. All the gods of Olympus on display. A Roman satirist who I, I guess wrote for the ancient equivalent of Private Eye or the Babylon Bee... He once wrote that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And that was actually statistically true. There were about 10,000 people living in the city, and there were 30,000 statues of gods. Not to mention the innumerable temples and shrines and images and altars. Everywhere the Athens tourists looked, they saw beauty, grandeur, architectural impressiveness. And Paul wasn't blind to that beauty but he also saw something deeply troubling as well. He saw idolatry everywhere. I'll just pause for a moment and think about our city of Bristol. Uh, Lizzie and I had the opportunity a little while ago to do the tour guide thing with our uh, friends that came over from the US, and uh, I found myself waxing lyrical about the beauty of Bath and Bristol and, uh, and sharing all sorts of historical facts that were, were probably only vaguely accurate and some of them perhaps not. Um, I bigged up the city. I bigged up these two cities. I bigged up the architecture. I bigged up the art and its achievements. And I honestly wasn't thinking too much at the time about signs of idolatry. It's easy to think, isn't it? Surely modern-day Bristol is nothing like ancient Athens. Especially when we live in a largely secular society, we don't have statues to greet gods on our streets or shrines and temples for offering sacrifices. But here's what we do have that end up being used to do the very same thing. We have banks and theatres and tech stores, shopping malls and coffee shops and restaurants. Our modern-day places of worships Worship are the Apple stores, the sports stadiums, the John Lewis's and the Harvey Nichols, the pubs and clubs and wine bars, the concert venues and gyms and offices. Not that these places are inherently wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with them. They're fine in principle, but for many people, they are the places they undoubtedly go to worship, to worship food to worship fashion, to worship beauty, technology, fitness, alcohol, sex, romance, to worship music and cars, home improvement and money. Because idolatry at its root is not just about visible statues and temples. Oh, if only it was, it would be so easy for us to avoid it. 
Idolatry is not even just about Simon Cowell's latest pop idols. It's an interesting title for a show, isn't it? No, idolatry is about anything people make gods out of in their daily lives. Anything we attribute ultimate worth to. Anything. Even good things that we make into a God substitute because we don't know or we don't want to know or we've forgotten who the true God is and what he's like. Tim Keller, in um, uh, what I think is an excellent book on this topic of idolatry, and I reread it this week and I really encourage you to look at it again. Counterfeit Gods is the name of the book. He says, idolatry is taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your entire life on it. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And it isn't even just about material objects either. Tony Merida writes, Idols can take the form of the need for people's approval, the relentless pursuit of success and money, the drive for pleasure, the pursuit of education, or maybe even an obsession with an individual. 21st century idolatry can look and seem very different. It can seem much more sophisticated and secular than first century idolatry. But it's still idolatry. And the truth is, everyone worships something. It is in our nature. It's who we are as human beings. We were made to worship something. And if it's not God, it'll be the plethora of idols, the great buffet of false gods, which our consumeristic and self-focused culture is only too willing to supply to us. Oftentimes, again, these things are not bad things. They're even good things. But good things turned into God things become deadly things. And the question this morning is, as we begin, can we see it? Can we see the whole picture? Can we see the dark underbelly of our world? Can we see the idols our culture worships? Paul could see the grandeur and the beauty, but at the same time, he could see it was full of idols. And not only could Paul see it, he also felt something in response to it. Have a look at verse 16 again. His spirit was provoked within him. When Paul saw this, he wasn't unmoved or uncaring. He was provoked by the vast spiritual need in front of him. That here were so many people, clearly so spiritually hungry, and yet clearly still so spiritually empty. He was grieved by seeing all these people drowning in idolatry. And he was also grieved by this affront to God's glory. All idolatry, when you think about it, is a slur against the one true God. A slur against his character. A slur against his goodness. A slur against his sufficiency and against his glory. When we say someone is worshipping an idol, we're saying they love something more than God. They trust something more than God. They obey something more than God. And Paul was zealous that God receive the glory he deserves. John Stott points out that there are three great incentives for us as Christians to tell people about Jesus. The first of them is simple obedience. Jesus in the Great Commission says go, and so obediently we go. The second reason to tell people about Jesus is compassion. Compassion. 
a deep heartache and love for people who are lost and enslaved by idols. But Stott says the third and highest incentive of all is zeal for God's glory. And that's Paul's heart here. He's ready to obey the Great Commission. He is full of zeal for God's glory. And he is full of broken-hearted compassion for those drowning in idolatry. Paul is not indifferent. No, not indifferent. Nor does he turn away in disgust or turn on them and berate them. What are you doing? Nor does he say, well, when in Athens, do as the Athenians do and get on in with the idolatry. He doesn't escape it. He doesn't embrace it. He doesn't erupt in their faces. Instead, he steps forward to engage with them respectfully. And in so doing, he endeavors to tell them about Jesus. He, he sees, he feels, and he lovingly engages. Verse 17, Paul reasoned in the synagogue. Paul, everywhere he goes, Paul's reasoning with people. Reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He is out on the streets now reasoning with people. And what he sought to tell them about was, and this is our second heading this morning, the only worthy God. The only worthy God. All alone in this city full of idol worshippers, Paul's message is all about the only worthy God. And he soon ends up having a conversation with, with two groups of philosophers. And they represent two of the most popular worldviews of um, the, the, that Greco-Roman culture and the worldviews of that day. And I think what's really surprising here is we, we're going to dig into them just briefly. These Worldviews sound so familiar and contemporary to our ears. Uh, first of all, there are these guys called the Epicureans. And they believe that seeking comfort and pleasure was the greatest good in life. Life for them was all about feeling good. Now, actually for them, not by uh, huge indulgence and sort of spending lots of money and getting all that you could. No, life for them was all about feeling good by or through simple living through modest, seeking modest and hopefully pain-free lives. Uh, it strikes me these guys would have been really popular on YouTube today. They would have been hosting channels maybe on yoga, meditation, mindfulness, decluttering your home and your life, and pursuing discipline, self-improvement. Uh, and their view of the gods, these Epicureans, they considered the gods remote and distant. Like the gods had no interest or influence on human lives. They figured the world was basically run on chance, that death is extinction with no afterlife or judgment to come. And so, hence their philosophy, live your best life now, avoid pain, pursue comfort and serenity at all costs. Then there are the Stoics. And you might be, you might be more familiar with that term. Someone says, oh, you're being very Stoic there. It means you're being, being very measured. They placed thinking above feeling. They, they, were very, they were all about putting discipline over pleasure. They tried to live with apathy and detachment from life's struggles, to stand unmoved in the face of pain. And so their view of God or, or the gods, well, they believed that everything was God. They were pantheists. They believed the world was determined by fate, that, that human beings are just best off trying to live with nature, that one with nature, take pain on the chin, because in the end, whatever will be, will be, and nothing can change it. I think many people in our day still fall into one of those two categories. This is how many people cope with life in this world when they don't know God. These philosophies become people's functional saviors. 
YouTube, I'll say again, is, is, is full of this world's functional saviors. Whether it's diets or workouts or meditation, finance, hobbies, DIY, globe-trotting, simple living, etc., 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 YouTube is full of this world's functional saviors. And again, there's not anything fundamentally wrong with those things I've just listed, but God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And without God, we will try to fill that gaping hole in our hearts with all sorts of things that aren't meant to go there. Even good things. Turning good gifts into tyrannical gods. The city of Athens is full of those kind of gods. But Paul has something truly different for them. And many of them want to hear about it. Something about what he's sharing with them stands out to them. This is a city with 30,000 statues and, and goodness knows how many gods. But something already they've heard in Paul's message sounds different. And so verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's where the, the council would meet to discuss big ideas. Saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And so the stage is now set for Paul to share with them the gospel. But the question is, where will he begin? Because these men and women before him, they're not Jews. They're not even God-fearing Gentiles. They know virtually nothing of God or of the Bible, of the Scriptures. And so unlike in the synagogue, Paul here doesn't start with the Scriptures. Or even with Jesus, although he certainly intends to get them there pretty quickly. But he begins by building a bridge. He begins by building a bridge. He begins by establishing a point of contact with them, courteously, identifying something uh, obvious and evident and even commendable in their lives through which he can build a bridge to bring the gospel. And so verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And that, of course, was really obvious. Their city's full of statues and shrines and altars. But there's Paul's point of contact. There's his way into the conversation. And then he identifies a hole in their thinking. He identifies a problem, an oversight, a flaw in the way they view the world. And in their case, he points out their evident uncertainty. All of these gods, but they're so uncertain. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown gods. That word translated unknown is the word we get agnosticism from. It literally means without knowledge. They've got an altar that effectively is dedicated to the, the God we don't know, the God of which we have no knowledge. The Athenians claim to know everything about religion, everything about life. No city was more religious than theirs. But on this most important subject of all, God, their own statue reveals they're without knowledge and they are full of uncertainty. They've put this altar here out of fear of offending an unknown God. And that is the bridge that Paul can now bring, drive, wheel, walk the gospel over, the good news of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. Many of our friends and families, I know, will tell us they're not religious at all. Uh, and I get that. They're not religious in a way that's visible like the Athenians were. They probably won't have a literal altar in their house dedicated to an unknown God. But the truth is most people's lives are littered with evidence of their uncertainty. 
And with that uncertainty, they have, in fact, erected all sorts of altars in their life to an unknown God. Things that they devote themselves to and sacrifice their money and time and energy to because they're afraid and uncertain about some pretty big questions. Afraid and uncertain about big questions like who they are, why they're here, what life's all about, whether they're valued, what they'll do if they get sick, and what will happen in the end when they die. And so, as we lovingly seek to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to people, the bridges we build, they might look and sound a bit different to Paul's, but it's often that same river of fear and uncertainty that we're trying to cross, trying to lovingly build a bridge across. And once that bridge is in place, and we're compassionately conversing and connecting with people on things that matter, we can, like Paul, begin to drive across it the greatest news a person can ever hear. Here's that news. Here's that news in Acts 17, that there is one true God, and we can know him. Verse 23, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And that's Paul's sermon intro. That's his intro. It's not my intro, by the way. We're a long way through. But that's Paul's sermon intro. He's got their attention. He's built a bridge. And then he begins to tell them what God is really like and why this God alone is worthy of worship. And so he tells them four things in particular about this God, all of which are designed to shake the foundations of their idolatry, to topple the idols in their hearts, and all of which are designed to invite them to turn and meet the God who can be known, the only true God, who is far better than any idol they could possibly set their lives upon. And so first of all, he tells them this God, first of all, this God is the creator of all things, so doesn't need our temples. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Here's what Paul says, everything everywhere is made by God. Everything you see is his, wherever you look. Every tree, every ocean, every animal, every person, every speck of dust and every giant mountain, every atom in the universe is made by God and has his stamp of ownership upon it. Now in our present day and age, it's very easy to think that most things are made in China. Find that label, don't you, on so many products and things we own. But in actual fact, everything in existence is made by God. And it has his stamp of ownership upon it. Whether people recognize it or not, everything actually has a made by God label on it. Everything. And so there can't be many gods like this city of statues suggests, there can't be many gods. How can there be many gods when there is one God who created all things? Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to him. And being Lord of all, Paul also points out, it's frankly ludicrous, ridiculous, to suggest that this God who made everything could be confined in a little temple that that human hands have put together. And perhaps here Paul actually gestured uh, just over the rise to the Parthenon, the, the magnificent temple that stood above them on the Acropolis, as if to say, it's a very nice temple, guys, 
but it's empty. You can't possibly contain the Lord of heaven and earth. In Isaiah 66 verse 1, the Lord himself says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? This God is the creator of all things. Secondly, Paul tells them, this God is the sustainer of all things and so doesn't need our service. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I have in my office, and I may have admitted this before, but two plants, one called Felix, one called Felicity. I had help with the names. And and these plants, they rely on me to sustain them, to feed and water them and to tend to them every few days. Uh, And you're thinking, yeah, poor plants, because knowing what my memory's like, they, they do suffer. They're not always watered, but if I don't look after them enough or I give up on them entirely, they will wither and die. But this God that Paul is talking about, he's not like Felix and Felicity. He doesn't need us to tend him in religious services. He doesn't need us to come feed him and water him on a Sunday morning. He's not our plant or pet or creature dependent on us for love and food and shelter. On the contrary, this God is the one who's giving us life and breath to us every second of every day. All of us right now, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, taking another breath, every breath. God is sustaining us, giving us every breath. And if he stops sustaining us for just one millisecond, it is we who would wither and die instantly. But praise God, he doesn't stop. Unlike me with my poor plants, God never forgets to give us breath. The Epicureans, remember, they believed that if there were gods, they were aloof and distant from creation. But Paul says, not a chance. We're only alive right now because the one true God is unimaginably near to us, intimately involved with us. Literally holding all things together, giving breath to our lungs moment by moment, holding it together by the word of his power. What a God we have. Creating all things, sustaining all things, and he is near to us. What a God. Thirdly then, Paul tells them this God is sovereign over all peoples. And so he wants all people to know him. Verse 26 And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God, Paul is saying, is is not just a parochial God. He's, He's not just a national God, a God of this nation here or this nation here. No, he is he is God over all the nations. He made one man from one man every nation. He's Lord of all. And he's also sovereign, Paul says, over every detail of our lives. From our place of birth and date of birth to where we'll live and what we'll do to how and when we'll die. And that means that none of our lives are by accident or without meaning. Every one of us is here on earth for a reason. We exist for a reason. We have a purpose. And here's the purpose, verse 27, that they should seek God. 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, Paul is saying, deep down, every human heart knows that this God exists and that we were made to know him and find our rest in him, made to worship him and find unimaginable joy and purpose in him. He says, even the Greek poets, your poets, guys, they they know. They know, yet they don't know, but they kind of know that this God exists. They just don't fully realize it. Paul is... Paul is being deliberately inviting here. He's not having a go at them. He's being inviting. There is one true God to find. And deep down, every human heart knows it. And he's actually not far from each one of us. He's personal and close by and wants us to know him. The problem is we're blind to him. It's not that God doesn't see us. God is not blind, but we are blind to him. We have blinded ourselves by worshipping idols. Romans 1, verse 21 and 25 says this. says this of all, all mankind. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. There is idolatry. There is how we got there. Spiritual blindness is our problem. And when Paul talks about us feeling our way towards God in verse 27, the word he uses is of a blind man groping for something that they can no longer see. It's the same word that was used by the Greek poet Homer. If you brushed up on your Greek myths, you might remember the story of the Cyclops. And in this story, uh, the, the, the one-eyed Cyclops, uh, I mean, you kind of feel for him, don't you? Because he started out the story with only one eye. Uh, but he's holding Odysseus and his men prisoner. And Odysseus gets the Cyclops drunk and then blinds him with a sharp stake in his only eye. And now Odysseus and his men can escape from the cave while the Cyclops, the blinded Cyclops, is left groping around. That's the word here. He knows they're near, but he's unable to find them. And so they escape. Tony Merida writes, in using this word then, it's as if Paul is saying, in our sin, we are as unseeing as the blinded cyclops. We instinctively know God is there, but because of sin's blinding effects, we need divine grace to give us the new spiritual eyes to find him. God is not detached, disinterested or unengaged. He is near to us. But we now need the work of Jesus Christ to know him. In rejecting God and worshipping idols, we have literally gouged out our own eyes. When idols look like gods gods to us and we can't see the true God, we're in trouble. So what should we do? The answer is in the fourth and final thing that Paul tells the Athenians about the only worthy God. Fourthly and finally, this God, he says, is the judge of all the worlds and so commands all peoples, all people to repent. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See, so far, Paul has laid out an awful lot of information for the Athenians about God. But now for the first time, he gives them a direct instruction from God. He's moved from information to instruction and now from God himself. And that instruction is to repent of their idolatry, to give it up and turn back to him. And notice the directness of this instruction here. We cannot water this down. It is, first of all, from God himself, the God who created all things and sustains all things and is sovereign over all things. That God, the God of the universe, commands everyone to repent. Secondly, we see it's, it's a command. This is not a mere idea or suggestion. The God of the universe commands all people to repent. And thirdly, it's a command to all people everywhere. Not, this command is not just to religious people or church-going people or non-busy people who have the time to think about it or, or restless, overwhelmed people, but to all people, the Lord of heaven and earth commands that every person on the earth should repent because a particular day is coming. Verse 31, because this God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God is not going to allow this world's idolatry to continue forever. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world justly. He has already appointed the person who will be the judge. And he's already given the assurance that this day is coming by raising this man from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus proves that judgment is coming. God's judgment is the next big date on God's calendar. Christ's resurrection proves that God will not leave his creation to drown in idol worship forever. He, he loves the world he's made too much. He loves the people on it too much to allow that to continue. But nor will he allow idolatry to go unpunished. Because the Jesus who rose is the Jesus who will come back to judge. And yet, there's a, there's a but. Just as surely as the resurrection assures us of this coming judgment, the resurrection also assures us there is a sure and certain way to be saved from that judgment. Because the same Jesus who's going to return to judge the world in righteousness will also on that same day rescue those he has made righteous by his blood. The resurrected Jesus will on that day rescue completely all those who listen to this command here from God to repent and believe the good news about his son. And here's that glorious good news. That three days before Jesus rose, Jesus died. And the reason he died is he died in the place of idol worshippers just like you and me. He was crucified on a Roman cross taking upon himself the penalty for all of our idolatry so that in this magnificent exchange, all who put their trust in him could be wholly pardoned, forgiven, and set free. Free to know and worship the God who made us to enjoy him forever. The question for all of us this morning is, what will we do with what we've heard and seen how will we respond to what God has shown us here? 
There's an old story about a missionary with a microscope. And uh, he's over in India, and he shows an Indian man the dirty water of the Ganges. The lens of the microscope provided undeniable proof that the filthy river used by people for bathing and laundry and by animals for every possible purpose and by everyone as a dumping ground, this water was not fit to drink under any circumstances. And after lifting his eye from the microscope, the, the Indian man with him looking through this microscope asked a curious question. He said, are there any other things like this microscope around this area? And upon being assured by the missionary that this microscope was the only one he might ever see, the man grabbed the scientific instrument, smashed it against a rock, and continued drinking from the Ganges. Paul's message met with a variety of different responses that day in Athens. And there were some uh, who, especially when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, they simply mocked. They, they, they took the microscope and they smashed it against the rock and they went on blindly with their idolatry. But others, verse 32, said, we will hear you again about this. They didn't understand it all yet, but they, 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 they wanted to hear more. They knew they needed to hear more. And maybe that's you this morning. You don't understand all of this yet. Maybe this is quite new to you, very new. But you know you need to know more and want to know more. And we would love to tell you more and share more with you about this. But there were also some men and women there that day who there and then believed. Now, these are real, everyday, ordinary people with ordinary names for the time, for the culture. Uh, Dionysus and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Greek men and women who maybe before this day knew nothing about this God um, and this Jesus, Paul's message. Maybe even now, still probably didn't know much at all or an awful lot afterwards, but who had heard at least enough to know that they needed to repent and believe this message about Jesus. If you have heard enough this morning to know that these things are true, don't put off until another day what God is calling you to do today, to turn to him from idols and believe the good news about his son. And I say don't put it off, not only because it's so easy to go out from here and get sucked right back into the, the ocean of idols that is out there in the world in which we swim. But I say it also because the freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus offers us, the realization that the only God worthy of our worship actually loves us to such a degree that he sent his son to die for us, and the joy of no longer being enslaved to idols, and all of those accompanying uncertainties and fears that come with them, well, there is nothing else like that in all the world. There is no better news, no greater freedom than that. This really is the best news you will ever hear. There is no day like today to turn from idols to God and enter into a whole new relationship with him through his son. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Finally, a short word of application for those of us here this morning who are already believers. And I trust we've already been helped by God's word. Let's not allow idols to take over our lives again. Maybe there are some altars in our lives that we've, we've re-erected in recent times, in recent days, that we need to go home and tear down again this afternoon. Things that have taken the place of God in our lives. We need to tear those altars down. 
Certainly as Christians, idolatry is going to be something we struggle with in our hearts every day of our lives. Again, go read this book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, It's an eye-opening experience, such a helpful book. We battle with idolatry in here every day of our lives. But there is a big difference between battling it with wins and losses versus just embracing idolatry with open arms and letting it back into our lives each day like an old friend. My dear friends, flee from idolatry, writes Paul. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, writes John, for we have already been rescued from the idols that once enslaved us. We've already been given new eyes to see a far superior treasure in Jesus. We have already been given new hearts that have tasted the beauty and the majesty and the mercy and the goodness of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's behold him. Let's worship him, the only worthy God. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we worship you this morning. The only true God, the only God worthy of our praise. Lord, we gladly bow the knee before you this morning, for you are our creator and sustainer and Lord. Father, we thank you for rescuing us from the idols that once enslaved us. We thank you for giving us new eyes to see a far superior treasure in Jesus. We thank you for giving us new hearts that have already tasted of your beauty. Oh Lord, we pray, please continue to help us keep ourselves from idols to flee all idolatry, especially those idols that have in our past or even in our present had a great hold upon our hearts. And Lord, we pray together for those who don't yet know you and don't yet worship you this morning. Lord, we pray that they would hear your loving, merciful command to repent. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give them eyes to see and ears to hear your invitation to turn to Jesus and be saved. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant to them a whole new life, free from fear and uncertainty, secure in the knowledge of your great love for them in Christ. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.